We're going to jump into this next teaching, uh, all revolving around this truth of sanctification. <coughs> We've been in this series called We Believe, which has been a theology series, a series talking about not just from a theological perspective, as important as that is, but a very practical perspective on how the things that we believe as Christians are meant to shape, reshape, and define our lives. So today we're continuing on in this series, and over these past weekend, weeks, we have zeroed in on this idea of sanctification, how we grow in our love for following Jesus in all areas of our lives. Last week we spoke about the importance of letting God renew our minds, how in, in our lives, whatever we're looking at, whatever we're embracing, whatever we're doing, God is constantly trying to bring our minds to his mind. We're to look at who we are and what we're doing, the way we see ourselves, the way we care for people, the way we understand the, God, the, the love that God has for us and the love we have for other people. God is constantly renewing our minds, helping us to understand how he sees the world and us in it. And today we're going to talk about a subject deeply connected to that idea and the larger truth of sanctification. We're going to talk about a principle that the Bible says or calls reaping and sowing, which is an important truth that we've talked about here before. And my hope is that we'll leave today with a clear understanding of how, what we invest in our lives today. This is the principle in the Bible. What we invest into our lives today, the things we make important, the things we make priorities, will largely make us the people we will become tomorrow. And this leads me to the only we believe truth that I want to share with you today. We'll discuss it for the rest of our time this morning, and I pray you will think about it and act upon it this week as God leads you. We believe to become more like Jesus, you must sow the truth of God into your life. Remember, we're sort of stacking teachings here. While each one is independent, they are connected. And so to become more like Jesus, which is the essence of sanctification, to grow into the image of Jesus, the primary way we do that is to sow the truth of God into our lives. We have to feed that, and we feed that with God's truth. And Paul in Galatians 5, I'll reread what was read to us, gives us this interesting teaching on walking in the Spirit. He says, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He's immediately contrasting. The, the flesh, sort of our desire to move away from God, and the spirit, God's desire for us to move more closely to him. And he goes on to say, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. We need the mind of God to know what to do and what not to do, to understand who we are and who God wants us to be. And so in this teaching, according to Paul, there's an interesting idea that he introduces. And I want to get ahead of Paul here. He fully forms this idea in Galatians 6. But here he begins to lay the groundwork, telling us that every one of us is sort of like a, a spiritual farmer. We can say it this way. Tending to an important harvest call of our life. In other words, we've been entrusted this thing called our lives. And we are to care for our lives in the same way that a farmer would tend to crops to, to feed the needs of the people in his or her community. Now, what's really powerful about this teaching, and this is one of the reasons why I love the epistles, is that Paul is not writing about something that he read about somewhere. He is a guy who has really wrestled with this truth in his own life. And it's fair to say, if you read his epistles, he is still wrestling with this truth in his life. In his life. He is becoming more like Jesus every day. And this is both a blessing and a bit of a challenge. Here in Galatians 5, and very bluntly in Galatians 6, he introduces this idea of reaping and sowing. Galatians 6 sort of is like a culmination of all the things he's saying now. And he says, listen, you can't mock God. God God knows. We reap what we sow. And so all these principles of walking in the spirit, these ideas of farming, all of these things lead to that truth in Galatians 6. And he tells us that every person, really, one way or the other, is either sowing seeds to grow their flesh, which moves us away from God, <coughs> or is sowing to the spirit, 
which moves us towards Jesus. And he directly connects following Jesus to a farming principle, the principle of reaping and sowing. This is very common in the New Testament because, I mean, we are no less affected by farming today. Make no mistake about it. Everything you and I eat comes from a farm somewhere, but we're not as directly connected to it. Simply meaning we don't necessarily walk up the road and go to the farm to get our corn. We actually walk up the road and we go to a Walmart or another grocery store to get it. So we're no less affected by the truths of farming, but the reality here is people saw these things every single day. And that's why farming is such a common, or agrarian principles are so common in the Bible. They made a lot of sense to the people that were in their world. And this truth, whether you know anything about farming or not, should make a lot of sense to us. Let me explain this idea of reaping and sowing. Several years ago, uh, you know, my family, my wife and my kids have gotten very crafty with like yard stuff. And they, they actually planted a garden, which was super cool. We've never had one of these in our lives. And they've been able to grow things like tomatoes, uh, cauliflower, and a host of other things, herbs and seasonings that we've been able to eat. Like some days when we're cooking, we just go out to the little garden and <laughs> take whatever it is we're going to take and put it in whatever it is we're going to eat. And it's sort of funny. That's shown us a lot of things. Like some days there are lots of tomatoes, and other days there are no tomatoes because the squirrels have decided they were a little more hungry than us. And it shows you sort of some of the realities, the blessings, and the hardships of life. Farming, ironically, has a very great meaning in the world today. Lots of principles we can derive from. And so last year, to my surprise, my children planted jalapeno peppers for me, which if you know anything about me, I really like jalapeno peppers, like in a really not good way. I don't moderate them at all. I eat them excessively to the point where they have burned my esophagus and my belly. Like I'm keeping these, uh, like these companies that provide the anti sort of digestion stuff. These things are what I eat regularly because I love jalapenos. I put them on everything. I can't even eat them raw. And then my family started pickling them, which was even worse because now I can dump them on just about anything. And so it was super awesome to be thought of, although it's going to probably shave three years off of my life. But I was also very excited about this fact that we have a, a virtually unlimited supply of these jalapeno peppers now when they grow. And so they're good for lots of things, for a host of cooking needs. And even though I don't know anything about farming, my general assumption is that when my kids said, hey, Dad, we planted jalapeno seeds for you, one day, when the timing was right, jalapenos would grow. Now, I suspected that, plant, that planting truth makes sense to most of you. If you were to hear about something being planted, you would think, well, whatever was supposed to be planted is what should grow. But what if, what if that story had a bit of a different ending? What if I told you that same story, and at the end of that harvest cycle, about a year afterwards, what if I told you that what grew were bananas? Well, you would probably say something like, well, that doesn't make any sense. If, if somebody planted a jalapeno seed, then a jalapeno is what should grow. If you planted a banana seed, then a banana tree should grow. Something's out of sorts here because jalapeno seeds do not grow bananas. And this is why I say, whenever we talk about this principle of reaping and sowing, this is a very common principle for us. We function by it in many areas of our lives, maybe just not connecting it to the agrarian world. In the farming world, we expect that if you plant a certain thing, you get a certain thing. When you plant peppers, you get peppers. And Paul is sort of priming the pump for this grand analogy that he gives us in, in Galatians 6. And he connects our faith to these very same principles. What you invest into your life, what is a priority to you, what you sow into, what you dedicate your time to, your efforts to, your energies to, your monies to, they produce a particular harvest in life. What we put into life is often what we will get out of life. In fact, who you are today is very likely a direct result of what you sown into your life yesterday. Let me give you some very, let me give you some agrarian ideas in the practical world, okay? 
The person who looks at their life today, maybe you consider yourself incredibly blessed because you have amazing relationships with friends and family. The people that matter most to you, you are still in their lives and likewise. Friends, family, spouses, children, whatever. If you have meaningful and good relationships like that, that is very likely the byproduct of you spending years prior sowing healthy relational rhythms into them. In other words, you've invested in building those relationships. And because of that, you, you reap some of the fruit of that. You have good, not perfect, but good relationships. On the contrary, this principle can be applied to all other things. The person who is buried under excessive consumerism. <coughs> a couple of months ago, I shared with you that the bulk of our economy revolves around these consumer spending indexes. And so this is sort of an idea that is pushed on us in all areas of life. Because this is so encouraged in the world we live at today, some people after 10 or 15 years, they wake up and they find out that they're buried in consumer debt. And that didn't just happen. It is likely the product of spending years prior sowing into reckless spending habits. You know, eventually, if we slide the credit card too much, it will catch up with us. Or the person who wakes up one day and says to themselves, hey, I'm however old in life, I have no direction in life. Like, I wonder what I've spent the last 20 years of my life on. This is likely the byproduct of somebody who maybe did not use the limited amount of time we've been given on this earth, this precious amount of time, to become something in life or to, to make our dent in the world, whatever that is. All of these things, to a certain degree, in each case, there is likely a direct cause and effect taking place. I'm not going to say 100% of the time, but I am saying for the most part, this principle is pretty tried and true. There is a cause and an effect. What a person produces is usually the direct result of what they've sown earlier in life. And so, naturally, just summarizing what I just said, when you sow good relationships, you get good relationships. When you sow reckless financial living, you're very likely gonna get debt. And when you sow apathy in your life, you are very likely going to get stagnation. That's what Paul's trying to show us here, that we have to be really mindful of what we plant in our lives today. Because if we don't, we might wake up either very, we might wake up regretting, frankly, what we become tomorrow. Or we might want to make changes in our lives to sort of correct what's happened. Nobody can perfectly do this, but we certainly don't want to function in, our, in this life without the understanding that this is a true principle for us. And the Bible actually has a name for sowing unhealthy seeds. I want to talk about that first. Unhealthy seeds like this, it's called worldly living. Now, worldly living is a pretty loaded religious term today. It often carries a ton of baggage with it, but Jesus himself talks about it. So rather than avoiding it, it's better that we try to understand the term the world. The word the world in the Bible, I've talked about that word here before, but it's one of those words that can often be very confused in our world today, even in our religious context. But it usually has a very precise biblical definition depending on the context of the way it's being used in the Bible. And here, what we're talking about today, it has a very particular meaning. A good working definition of the word the world that we're talking about today would go something like this. World, the world of worldliness is when a person knowingly or unknowingly commits their heart to a system of belief and oftentimes conduct that is opposed to the ways of God. In other words, we've been talking about knowing the mind of God and having our mind renewed by the grace of Jesus Christ. Worldliness simply says, hey, it is God's desire that I live this way or be this way, yet uh, I'm going to decide to be this way. God desires that I care for my neighbor, but I don't have any time for that, so I'm just not going to do that. That's a great example of this word. It's, so, it's when we are sort of knowingly or unknowingly opposed to the ways of God. And there's a, a great quote. I've shared this multiple times in the past with you, but I want to share it again from a passed away Anglican pastor named John Stott. 
He was a theologian also, and he wrote about this concept in one of his commentaries. Here's what he said when describing living or sowing to the flesh. He said, to sow to the flesh is to pander to it, to coddle and stroke it, instead of crucifying it. In other words, he, he's saying the, the things that are opposed to God, when we pander to the flesh, we care for those things. We cherish them like a, like a newborn child. We invest in those things. And as a consequence, what happens is they begin to grow. And that's why he goes on to say, every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge or nurse a grievance, entertain an impure fantasy or wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company, whose insidious influence we know we cannot resist, every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up and praying, every time we expose our eyes to things they shouldn't see, every time we take a risk that strains our self-control, we are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. And then he makes an interesting statement. He says, some Christians sow to the flesh every day, and they wonder why they do not reap holiness. In other words, they want to be close to God. They want the promises of God. They want the peace and the joy and the experience of knowing God. But if we're, if we're sowing to our flesh, we are never going to fully experience those things. And we create this dichotomy in our mind. We pander to the flesh and desire the things of God. And what Stott is saying here is the root issue in sowing to the flesh like this is that on one hand, a person really does want to be like Jesus. But then on the other hand, they, they are misappropriating their priorities in life. They sow things into their life that make them anything but like Jesus. And from the outside looking in, this is somewhat of an obvious disconnect to all of us. Meaning, I, I guess what I want to say here is sometimes this is very easy to identify in the lives of other people because we're easily disconnected from that. We don't deal with the struggle or the burden or the hurt that that person is suffering in those moments that might cause them to seek fulfillment in things that are not God as if they are God. However, it's much less likely that we will, in incredibly and perfect objective ways, be able to sense this in our own lives. Because if you're overcome by temptation or ruled by the ways of the world, or like what Paul says in Galatians 5, if you're putting your confidence in your own flesh, meaning you trust yourself more than the ways of God, it's going to be much harder to see that disconnect because you are knee-deep in the middle of the struggle. And that's why we need a clear gospel truth to cling to before we find ourselves in this situation. And Paul gives us this truth when he says, if you want to be more like Christ, you have to sow to the Spirit. You have to invest in the ways of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about renewing our minds in a certain area, asking us to think about what we invest the moments of our life in. The way you'll know you're sowing to the Spirit, he says, is when you begin to walk or live by the Spirit. And this is a very common teaching in the New Testament. Jesus gives us an incredible theology, some robust teachings on the nature of his Holy Spirit in the world after he leaves us. And Paul is processing this. He's beginning to talk to us about the effects the Spirit is having on the world and our lives in it. And what he says here is, when you are sowing to the Spirit, you will know because you will start to live or walk by the Spirit. In the Bible, much like the word worldliness, living by the Spirit has a very particular meaning. And here is why knowing it is important. We're commanded to live by the Spirit. In fact, until Jesus' return, His Holy Spirit is running the world. That's what we know. Right now, the Spirit is the person who has been left to us to accomplish the will of God until Jesus' return. Super important. The hinge of Christianity swings upon the Holy Spirit right now. We're commanded to live by the Spirit because the true source of strength of the Christian life, it cannot be fabricated or manufactured by us. We cannot make up the things of Christianity. We rely on God through His Holy Spirit for it. The very nature of being a Christian is a gift from God. When we know the grace of Jesus, we have received the gift of Christ. 
And because of that, you know, I, I sort of have this pat saying I say, you can't build the kingdom of God without the king. And the same is true with his Holy Spirit. We can't walk in the spirit without the power of his spirit. We've already said many times the main goal of our sanctification is to become more like Jesus. It's to bring every area of our lives in very broken and imperfect ways under his lordship. It's a, it's a lifelong journey of pursuing and becoming more like Jesus. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful journey, but one that can often be a struggle. And there are some categories that I think we can think about when we try to process how we walk in the Spirit. We say here that a fully formed disciple, and by fully formed I don't mean perfect. I mean they're striving to be like Christ. They are becoming a lover of Christ's truth, meaning they love his gospel, or they're learning to love his gospel. They are a faithful partner in the church family. They value the people of God. And they are a servant for Christ in the spheres of influence that God has placed them in, what we call mission. And this is why our discipleship pathway here is gospel, community, and mission. We believe deeply that our interaction with those truths can really reshape life. It can help us to become more like Christ. And so logically and theologically, you cannot become more like Jesus in those areas without relying on the presence of his Holy Spirit. And so living by the Spirit, while there are many applications to this, one of the ways I like to explain this is that it's just saying we're living like Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit is Christ's Spirit in us until his return. Yeah. Living by the Spirit is just another way to say living like Jesus. And we could talk about for years what it means to live like Jesus. It's embracing his truth and his ideas and his ways. And so think about this. Our connection to the Spirit, our longing to, to know God through his Spirit, it's a very important thing. Our proximity, our relational proximity to God is very important in how we grow in the grace, how we become sanctified. Think about it like this. Think about whether you are a parent now, or have parents, or have <coughs> parents, wherever you are, parents play a role in our lives. And I'm going to talk about this from the angle of positive right now. So I guess what I want to do is sort of pre-mention that if you've had a negative experience with parents, that's a common story in our world. I want to give you a biblical idea of parenting. I don't want to deny that challenge, but I want to say there is a reason God has given us parents and made us parents. Think about it like this. One of the reasons many of us grow up to be like our parents in certain areas, not every area, but oftentimes we, we become like our parents in some areas. And that really can be good and, and bad. Our children, much like we did, we learn things from our parents, some really good and some not so good. And the parenting cycle, I think, is a, it's a constant evolution, especially for the Christian, of growing in the grace of Jesus. And you know, prayerfully, each generation grows out of some of the mistakes that we've made. Because no parent gets away from making mistakes. But parents also have an indelibly positive contribution on their kids. We raise our children, and as a result, we spend vast amounts of time with them. There's seasons in life where without our parents, we wouldn't have even made it. Right? You know, when you're an infant, you don't walk into the Walmart and buy beans. You can't do that. You're relying on your mom and your dad to take care of you. And as a result, what happens, because of our relational proximity to them... We become like them in certain areas, and we often embrace what matters most to them. We're not carbon copies, but maybe working hard was a value in your home, or being honest, whatever it is, some of these things transfer into us. The same is true when we pursue Jesus by walking in his spirit. The closer we are to Jesus, the closer we are to, to following God and letting his spirit have reign in our lives, the, the more likely we are to become like Christ, to be sanctified into his image. And the mark of a person, according to Paul, that is trying to sow or keep in step with the Spirit of God, eventually becomes or sees what we call the fruit of the Spirit. It's a singular fruit with many applications. Not fruits. Every time I mention this, I mention this. Because it's not fruits of the Spirit. There is one defining attitude that the Spirit builds in us, fruit. And that shapes a myriad of elements, areas, and characteristics of our lives. 
Because what happens here is the closer we are, the more we are walking in the Spirit, the more likely we are to cultivate new affections for God that, that sort of help us to understand the distinction between the things of God and the things that are not of God. And when that happens, you are starting to sow to the Spirit. When you start to sow to the Spirit, you will start to become more like Jesus. It can't happen any other way because the Spirit is not working in your life. And this really makes a lot of sense because if the Holy Spirit keeps and empowers us to live a life of following Jesus, then we should naturally be okay with what Paul is saying here in Galatians 5. We should be okay with the Spirit directing our steps in life. And that's those, those steps are deeply rooted in who God is, what he's told us about himself in the Word, and the communal accountability we have to each other. Simply meaning the Spirit is working in a lot of ways, and one of the greatest ways that we can grow in our understanding of the way the Spirit works is to know him more deeply through the truths of Scripture and to see how he's working in the lives of men and women that we trust and love. So in the same way your pulse shows that you're physically alive, becoming more like Jesus, the real evidence of this, that you're spiritually alive, is, is when you start to walk in the Spirit. You know, we start to practice things like patience and gentleness and peace, and we have hope in life and, and joy. And I don't mean that we have those things, period, and we never struggle. But I'm saying when we lose our joy, when our hope is no longer with us, when we struggle with patience, there's a counterthought because God is trying to renew our minds in that area. When we are impatient, God reminds us that there is a need to be patient. Why? Because he is infinitely patient with us. When we feel like there is no joy in life, there is a counterthought that God raises in our mind. Why? Because it reminds us of the great joy of Jesus who took the cross on our behalf and saw it as pure joy. There's a different voice that speaks into our mind and our hearts because of the power of the Spirit. This is in part what we mean by walking with the Spirit. And for the remainder of our time, as brief as it is, I'd like to share three practical action steps with you for how you can posture your life to keep in step with and sow to the Spirit. There are some, some really practical things that we not only could do, but we should be doing. Meaning if you want to sow to the Spirit, I would challenge you to ask if these rhythms are in your life. Find grace from God where they are not, and find encouragement from Him in areas where you are faithful, and invest in the lives of others where they need help. When I talk about this, sowing to the Spirit, I always like to use this analogy when we talk about steps like this. Um, I want you to think about what we're about to discuss as sort of the spiritual equivalent of the way that combat soldiers are trained to think in the heat of battles. Soldiers are trained to react. They are essentially conditioned so much on how to deal with certain situations that if you talk to somebody, law enforcement is very similar. When they're going through these challenging circumstances, they are actually just doing. They're so disciplined in what they have been trained that they're just functioning. They're not having to really think about it. They're, they're doing it. And as a result, they're able to do their job in extremely difficult situations. And the parallel I want to communicate to you here is when it comes to dealing with the struggles of the world that can often be, keep us from becoming like Jesus, we cannot afford the luxury of figuring this stuff out in the moment. We really need to be disciplined prior to this. We need to know ourselves well enough to know how Jesus wants us to react in certain ways. If, we, if something is a, is a known sort of problem in our life, what we want to do is know that, and we want to be prepared for it when it seeks to take us away from Christ. So these three steps are going to give us a little bit of ammunition here to figure that out. First, if you want to serve the Spirit, make every effort to avoid actions and environments that trip you up. This is a very common one. It's very obvious, but it's often overlooked. Some of the issues we deal with in life are in our lives because we have let them be. This is not always the case, but, but there is probably some of this now or has been or will be a season of this in our life. We invite these problems into our life, these challenges. And the Bible speaks against this. 
It tells us to flee temptation wherever we see it. And what it's saying is, is in the areas you know are a challenge for your life, in the areas I know are a challenge for my life, we're going to be extra cautious. For example, I'll give you some very obvious ones. If you have or know somebody who has long had a problem with alcohol, it makes sense that you set your life up in a way that you're not around that stuff, lest it pull you away from God. Or if you have had really idealistic relational expectations about what love is, about how people should be, then it would make sense that we are extra cautious about this because relational ideals can often ruin the reality of the relationships we, that matter most to us. So if we are folks who we know we have placed unrealistic expectations on people and that has hurt us, then we should be mindful of not allowing anything in our lives to sow to that. And I'd like to point out that the movie theater is a great example of the themes that matter most to our world. And every year around holidays like you know Valentine's Day, movie theaters are flooded with like, they call them rom-coms now, like romantic comedies. I don't watch them. I promise you I don't watch them. Not that I'm against them. I just like movies where stuff blows up. I've always been that type of person. But these films, they sort of, there's a great desire in our culture for this. And so what happens is in 90 minutes, Two people meet, and they fall in love, and have the biggest problem the world's ever known, and by minute 58, they're back together, and by minute 91, they're married with 13 kids. That's usually how it works, something like that. That is not how our lives work. You know this. Our greatest relationship issues, they usually take much more than 95 minutes. And so what I'm saying is, is we don't want to feed that. So it might be smart for us to not entertain those thoughts, since they are a greater challenge for us in that area. Or if, for example, this is very relevant, I think, right now, because of the nature of social media, if personal pride is our struggle, then maybe we should post a little less on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram about how awesome we are. Because believe me, we all know how awesome you are. But if feeding that beast sort of causes you or I to forget about the awesomeness of God, then we might say we need to be careful with this. We need to be mindful of this because it, it's, it's sowing something that could potentially hurt us. Now, I know that avoidance is, it only goes so far there are limits to this. It's not possible to stay away from everything that might trip you up in life. So hear me what I'm saying. Fleeing temptation is not necessarily an end in and of itself. Rather, I just think it's a wise tool in our box as we follow Jesus. While all of our temptations and struggles, we all have them. They're usually different. Sometimes we might find people or become friends with them because they have similar struggles. The truth is their application in our lives will likely be unique because we are unique people. The way we deal with them, though, is not. There's a, a, a diversity of challenges we can have. But there's some very clear ways in the way that God calls us to deal with them. And this first one's very simple. We've got to be extra careful to not sow to the flesh by putting ourselves in situations that fuel the flesh or sin. So be mindful of that. And oftentimes our relationships with other people help us to understand where those challenges are. They can also be incredible support and encouragement for us. Step two. If you want to sow to the Spirit, make sure Bible study and prayer are regularly happening in your life. I say this a lot in this room, not because I don't have a lot of stuff to say, but because it's so important. Everything I'm sharing with you today is the byproduct of stuff that has either been studied in the Bible, shared with me from the Bible, or discussed from the Bible. After avoidance, which is largely defensive, we have to be offensive by making it a priority to let the truths of God's word encourage and sustain us. You want to know how to have good relationships in life? The scripture speaks to that. If we want to know how to deal with personal pride or these struggles, the scripture speaks to these things. We can't just avoid. We actually have to interact with the truth so that the truth can set us free from these areas that might bind us. We want these beautiful truths not just to be things that we read about, but we want to ask God through prayer to make them beautiful realities in our lives. We don't just want to see words on a page. We want God to use those words in a way that reshapes our heart. And so Jesus himself tells us his truth sets us free from the bondage of sin. 
that it would reveal the depths of who we are in light of God, and these truths will make us like God. And so to sow to the Spirit, we have to be in the Scripture. It's an absolute necessity. And it's interesting, we're living in a world today where the, the nature of the Spirit is actually sort of coming into fashion again, even in the evangelical world. But a lot of times, the nature of the Spirit is disconnected from the truth of the Word. And I'm telling you, we cannot disconnect these two things. We only know about the Spirit because the truth of the Word has communicated it to us. And so we want to be very mindful that being in Scripture is really a necessity because in it we're given every truth we'll ever need in life to combat the lies that seek to take us away from Jesus. It's through those avenues that the Holy Spirit wants to work in our lives. He wants to speak to us about God's perspective on pride, about God's perspective on generosity, God's perspective on life and grace. These are truths he has communicated to us in word and through Jesus. And the Spirit makes those truths alive to us. The reason we always couple Bible study with prayer is because when these two things are combined, God can really do amazing things in our lives. There's a book I reference quite a bit in this room by a, a gentleman named Tim Chester. It's a book called You Can Change. It's, a, it's sort of a theology on how God works in the human heart. He gave this great example of how we should be praying by talking about a child's natural response when they sense danger in their life. In other words, this analogy is sort of his example of how we look to God, the way we should be looking to God when, when we struggle. A child, he says, can be playing on the floor, completely minding their own business. Think of like a four or a five-year-old. They're sitting on the floor playing with whatever they're playing with. And as soon as they sense danger, hear a loud noise, this was especially true when my children were very little, when they know something is wrong, they instinctively react by looking for their parents. They're looking to somebody because they sense something is not right. And they immediately turn to the person whom they think can make it right, the person they trust. In that moment, the person they can rescue them, that can rescue them from whatever that potential danger is. And that is exactly how we need to understand the importance of Bible study and prayer in our lives. When you find yourself in a situation that you can't avoid, you have to turn to your Heavenly Father and ask Him for the strength to deal with whatever is in front of you. We have to look to Him with the same sense of urgency that we have looked to, or think about this, we respond to our children when they have needs and they cry out to us. That is the posture God has for us. He is, as Abe, our worship leader, just said all day long, His arms are wide open, waiting for us to be embraced by Him. And so we don't want to take advantage of that or act like that isn't real. What we are dealing with in front of us, our Father in Heaven wants us to deal with with Him. And so applying God's truth to your life through prayer is a daily discipline. Take some time this morning to think about that. Is scripture reading, prayer, a part of your life? Do you talk about the Word with people whom you love? And do people talk about the scripture with you because they love you? Essential to us becoming more like Jesus, just being sanctified. The last thing I'll mention here, we want to you know, be mindful of the fact that we're not... Inviting temptations into our life, we want to be mindful of the fact that we can turn to God through His Word and prayer with the power of the Spirit to work powerfully in us through those tools. The last thing I want to say is that if you want to serve the Spirit, you have to make it a point to not only think about yourself, but you must joyfully serve others. Serving. This word, it's, it's crazy if you think about it. The, the New Testament talks quite a bit about this idea of serving. And we read some pretty sobering truths about it. Like there are places where Jesus says, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. The Bible sort of tells us there are, is always going to be more, more things to be done for the kingdom of God than there will be people willing to step up and do them. And it's interesting that serving, as central as it is to our followership of Jesus, it can be such a low priority in the poll of people at times. It's a crucial part of, script, of the scripture, and it is a crucial part of our disciple-making pathway here. This is the word that we find synonymous with mission. And what this means is that when a, when a person begins to serve others, the reason why we think this is important to see, 
when we begin to serve others, whether that's in a room like this or the rooms adjacent to us on Sunday, or the neighborhood you live in or your workplace, wherever it is that you are beginning to think about the needs of other people, that is almost always a sure sign of a deeper level of love for God. And here's why. The root of all sin and struggle, no matter what it looks like on the outside, is almost always rooted in a desire to serve ourselves. So when we are not generous because we want to lavish ourselves, what's happening is we are generous, just not generous the way God wants it. You know, stinginess is almost a sign of personal generosity. We are really good with ourselves but not other people. Or if we can, for example, um, love self, we can value ourselves at times more than other people, what it's saying is, is we begin to value ourselves more than other people. And if we persist in that attitude for too long, what happens is, is we'll start to look down on other people for whatever reasons we determine we, you know, we believe are important. That's the reality of where most sin is. While serving others is rooted in sacrificing yourself for the sake of another. The very nature of doing for other people contradicts in every way what it means to only do for self. And that serving others' truth is the foundation of the Christian faith. We see it best displayed when Jesus went to the cross for us. His selfless sacrifice and death brings us life. I say this a lot. Jesus got nothing out of the cross except for the pleasure of his Father in heaven. But he gave us an awful lot from it. There was no benefit for him up there, but there was great benefit to us. And so naturally, a direct way to deal with selfishness, the selfishness that sin can often produce in our lives, is to be or to live in a way where our life is defined by sacrificially living for others. And when you serve other people like this, you are not only living like Jesus, but I think there's sort of a really tangible benefit that comes out of that. When you serve another person like this, apart from honoring God, which is great and beautiful and should be the reward in and of itself, when we live like Jesus and serve others, we will likely realize the, word has, the world has much more going on in it than, than merely what we think is going on there. When we are not aware of what's happening around us, what often happens is we get very myopic. Our struggles, our problems, our challenges, we can think they are the most significant thing in the world, and I'm not undermining them when we have them. I'm just saying sometimes it does the soul really well to serve a person who has a greater need than you, to be engaged in a person's life who has a greater struggle than you. I'm not minimizing your struggle. I'm just saying it, it humanizes us in some ways. And it allows us to recognize that grief and struggle exists all around us. And there's a great joy that comes out of being a part of the solution for somebody. I'm not saying solution meaning you'll fix something, but you have been, you've, been, you've honored your Father in heaven by serving the needs of another person. That pleases God, and the long-term benefit of that in your life and in others can be profound. When we serve others, it broadens the faith horizons we have. It, it automatically gets the narrowness out of us. It helps us to see the broader challenges that the people we care for and the world that we live in deal with. And furthermore, it's likely that you'll be encouraged as you learn from others and how they deal with their struggles. You'll see how God is working in other people's lives and answering their prayers. When you engage struggle, you can actually hear the stories of God in other people. And so the bottom line in all of this is one of the ways you and I sow to the spirit, consequently subdue the flesh, is to serve and bless our neighbors. And there's an incredible joy that can be brought to us in our hearts by doing this. A joy that increases our affection for God while simultaneously crucifying the flesh that often seeks to take us away from God. And so when you think about your life, is it a life marked by serving and caring for others? And so as we close this morning, I want to ask you to really pray that you would experience God in a more meaningful way today. That you would ask him to show you what you're sowing into. Seek forgiveness where you have erred. That's something we can all be honest about because we all have. Ask for renewed strength where we are tilling the soil of our heart faithfully. 
Ask for God to really, to really manifest himself in those places. Today, follow God as he leads you to a deeper level of love for Jesus. And as we move to response time, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you when it comes to what you are putting your life, uh, what you're putting into your life? What are you investing in today? And what is it that you are getting out of that? Ask yourself if that is what you want. Or ask yourself if there's a greater seed to sow, the truth of the Spirit, who in every way makes us more like Jesus. What is Jesus saying to you, and what will you do about it? Pray with me.